Sense and Sensibility, Chapter 29 continued. I felt myself, she added, to be as solemnly engaged to him as if the strictest legal covenant had been had bound us to each other. I can believe it, said Eleanor, but unfortunately he did not feel the same. He did feel the same, Eleanor. For weeks and weeks he felt it. I know he did. Whatever may have changed him now, and nothing but the blackest art employed against me, I have done it. I was once as dear to him as my own soul could wish. This lock of hair, which he now so readily give which he can now so readily give up, was begged for of me with the most earnest supplication. Had you seen his look, his manner? Had you heard his voice at that moment? Have you forgot the last evening of our being together at Barton? The morning that we parted, too, when he told me that it might be many weeks before we would meet again. His distress. Can I ever forget his distress? For a moment or two, she could say no more. But with this emotion had passed away, she added in a firmer tone. Eleanor, I have been cruelly used but not by Willoughby. Dearest Marianne, but who him, who but himself? By whom could he have been instigated? By all the world, rather than by his own heart. I could rather believe every creature of my acquaintance leagued together to ruin me in his opinion than believe his nature capable of such cruelty. This woman of whom he writes, whoever she can be, or anyone, in short, but your own dear self, Mama and Edward, may have been so barbarous barbarous to belie me beyond you three is there a creature in the world whom i can whom i would not rather suspect of evil than willoughby and whose heart i know so well eleanor would not contend and only replied whomever may have been so detestably your enemy let them be cheated of their malignant triumph my dear sister by seeing how nobly the consciousness of our own innocence and good intentions supports your spirits it is a reasonable and laudable pride which resists such malevolence. No, no, cried Marianne. Misery such as mine has no pride. I care not what who knows that I am wretched. The triumph of seeing me so may be open to all the world. Eleanor, Eleanor, they who suffer little may be proud and independent as they like, may resist insult or return mortification, but I cannot. I must feel, I must feel wretched, and they are welcome to enjoy the consciousness of it all they can. But for my mother's sake and mine, I would do more than for my own, but to appear to be happy when I am so miserable? Oh, who can require it? Again, they were both silent. Eleanor was employed in walking thoughtfully from the fire to the window, from the window to the fire, without knowing that she received warmth from one or discerning objects through the other. And Marianne, seated at the front of the bed, with her head leaning against one of its posts, again took up Willoughby's letter, and after shuddering over every sentence, exclaimed, It is too much. Oh, Willoughby, Willoughby, could this be yours? Cruel, cruel, nothing can acquit you. Eleanor, nothing can. Whatever he might have heard against me, ought he not have suspended his belief? Ought he not have told it to me, to have me given me the power of clearing myself? The lock of hair, repeating it from the letter, which you so obligingly bestowed on me? That is unpardonable. Willoughby, where was your heart? When you wrote those words, oh, barbarously insolent, Eleanor, can he be justified? No, Marianne, in no possible way. And yet this woman, who knows what her art may have been, how long it may have been premeditated, and how deeply contrived by her. Who is she? Who can she be? Whom did I ever hear him talk of as young and attractive among his female acquaintance? Oh, no one, no one. He talked to me only of myself. Another pause ensued. Marianne was greatly agitated, and it ended thus. Eleanor, I must go home. I must go and comfort Mama. 
Cannot we go be gone tomorrow? Tomorrow, Marianne? Yes, why should I stay here? I came only for Willoughby's sake. And now who cares for me? Who regards me? It would be impossible to go tomorrow. We owe Mrs. Jennings much more than civility. And civility of the commonest kind must prevent such a hasty removal at that. Well, then another day or two, perhaps, but I cannot stay here long. I cannot stay to endure the questions and remarks of these people, the Middletons, the Palmers. How am I to bear their pity? The pity of such a woman as Lady Middleton? Oh, what would he say to that? Eleanor advised her to lie down again, and for a moment she did so, but no altitude could give her ease, and in restless pain of mind and body she moved from one posture to another, till growing more and more hysterical, her sister could with difficulty keep her on the bed at all, and for some time was fearful of being constrained to call for assistance. Some lavender drops, however, which she was at length persuaded to take, were of use, and from time to time till Mrs. Jennings returned, she continued on the bed quiet and motionless. Chapter 30. Mrs. Jennings came immediately to their room on her return, and without waiting to have her request of admittance answered, opened the door and walked in with a look of real concern. How do you do, my dear? She said in a voice of great compassion to Marianne, who turned away her face without attempting to answer. How is she, Miss Dashwood? Poor thing, she looks very bad. No wonder I, it is but too true. He is to be married very soon, a good-for-nothing fellow. I have no patience with him. Mrs. Taylor told me of it half an hour ago, and she was told it by a particular friend of Miss Gray herself, else I am sure I should not have believed it, and I was almost ready to sink as to sink as it was. Well, said I, all I can say, if that is true, he has used a young lady of my acquaintance abominably ill, and I wish with all my soul and his wife may plague his heart out. And so I shall always say, my dear, you may depend on it. I have no notion of men's going on this way. And if I ever meet him again, I will give him such a dressing as he has not had this many day. But there is one comfort, my dear Marianne. He is not the only young man in the world worth having. And with your pretty face, you will never want admirers. Well, poor thing, I won't disturb her any longer, for she had better have her cry out and once and have it done with. The Perrys and Sandersons luckily are coming tonight, you know. That will amuse her. She then walked away, walking on tiptoe out of the room, as if she supposed her young friend's affliction could be increased by noise. Marianne, to the surprise of her sister, determined on dining with them. Eleanor even advised her against it. But no, she would go down. She could bear it very well, and the bustle about her would be less. Eleanor, pleased to have her governed for a moment by such a motive, though believing it hardly possible that she could sit out the dinner, said no more, and adjusting her dress, or as well as she could, while Marianne still remained on the bed, was ready to assist her in the dining room as soon as they were summoned to it. When there, though looking most wretchedly, she ate more and was calmer than her sister had expected. She had tried to speak, or had she been conscious of half of Mrs. Jennings' well-meant but ill-intentioned attentions to her, this calmness could have been less maintained, but not a syllable escaped her lips, and the absent abstraction of her thoughts preserved her in ignorance of everything that was passing before her. Eleanor, who did justice to Mrs. Jennings' kindness, though its effusions were often distressing and sometimes almost ridiculous, made her those acknowledgments and returned her those civilities which her sister could not make or return herself. Their good friend saw that Marianne was unhappy and felt that everything was due to her which might make her all less so. She treated her, therefore, with all the high and indulgent fondness of parent makes toward a favorite child on the last day of holidays. Marianne was to have the best place by the fire, was to be tempted to eat by every delicacy in the house, and was to be amused by the relation of all the news of the day. 
Had not Eleanor, in the sad countenance of her sister, seen a check to all mirth, she could have been entertained by Mrs. Jennings' endeavors to cure a disappointment in love by a variety of sweetmeats and olives, a good fire. As soon, however, as the consciousness of it all, this was forced by continual repetition on Marianne, she could stay no longer. With a hasty exclamation of misery and a sign to her sister not to follow her, she directly got up and hurried out of the room. Poor soul, cried Mrs. Jennings as soon as she was gone. How it grieves me to see her. And I declare if she is not gone away without finishing her wine and the dried cherries too. Lord, nothing seems to do her any good. I am sure if I knew of anything she would like, I would send it all over the town for it. Well, it is the oddest thing to me that a man should use such a pretty girl so ill. But when there is plenty of money on one side and next to none on the other, Lord bless you, they are no care about such things. The lady then, Miss Gray, I think you called her, is very rich. Fifty thousand pounds, my dear. Did you ever see her? A smart, stylish girl, they say, but not handsome. I remember her aunt very well, Biddy Henshaw. She married a very wealthy man, but the family are all rich together. Fifty thousand pounds, and by all accounts it won't come before it's wanted, for they say he is all to pieces. No wonder, dashing about with his curacle and hunters. Well, it doesn't signify talking, but when a young man, be he who he will, comes and makes love to a pretty girl and promises marriage, he has no business to fly off from his word only because he grows poor, and a richer girl is ready to have him. Why doesn't he in such a case sell his horses, his house, turn us off his servants, and make a thorough reform at once? I warrant you, Miss Marianne, would you have been ready to wait till matters came round? But that won't do. Nowadays, nothing in the way of pleasure can ever be given up by young men of this age. Do you know what kind of girl Miss Gray is? Is she said to be amiable? I never heard any harm of her. Indeed, I dearly ever heard of her mentioned, except that Mrs. Taylor did say this morning that one day Miss Walker hinted to her that she believed Mr. and Mrs. Ellison would not be sorry to have Miss Gray married, for she and Mrs. Ellison could never agree. And who are the Ellisons? Her guardians, my dear, but now she is of age and may choose for herself, and a pretty choice she has made. What now, after pausing a moment, your poor sister has gone to her own room, I suppose, to moan by herself. Is there nothing no one can get to comfort her? Poor dear, it seems quite cruel to let her be alone. Well, by and by, we shall have a few friends, and that will amuse her a little. What shall we play at? She hates whilst I know, and is there no round game she cares for? Dear ma'am, this kindness is quite unnecessary. Marianne, Marianne, I dare say, will not leave her room again this evening. I shall persuade her if I can go to bed early, for I am sure she wants rest. Aye, I believe that will be best for her. Let her name her own supper and go to bed. Lord, no wonder she has been looking so bad and can cast down this last week or two. For this matter, I suppose, has been hanging over her head as long as that. And so the letter that came today finished it. Poor soul. I am sure if I had had notion of it, I would not have joked about it for all the money. But then you know, how should I guess such a thing? I made sure of its being nothing but a common love letter. And you know young people like to be laughed at about them. Lord, how concerned Sir John and my daughters will be when they hear it. If I had my senses about me, I might have called in Conduit Street in my way home and told them of it. But I shall see them tomorrow. It would be unnecessary, I am sure, for you to caution Miss Palmer and Sir John against ever naming Mr. Willoughby or making the slightest allusion to what has passed before my sister. Their own good nature must point out to them the real cruelty of appearing to know anything about it when she is present. And the less that may ever be said to myself on the subject, the more my feelings will be spared. 
as you, my dear madam, will easily believe. Oh, Lord, yes, that I do indeed. It must be terrible for you to hear it talked of. And as for your sister, I am sure I would not mention a word about it without her for the world. You saw I did not all dinner time. No would, no more would Sir John nor my daughters, for they are all very thoughtful and considerate, especially if I give them a hint, and I certainly will. For my part, I think the less that is said about such things, the better. The sooner tis blown over and forgot. And what good does talking ever do, you know? In this affair, it can only do harm, so more so perhaps in many cases than a similar kind, for it has been attended to by circumstances which, for the sake of everyone concerned in it, make it unfit to become the public conversation. I must do this justice to Mr. Willoughby. He has broken no positive engagement with my sister. Law, dear, don't pretend to defend him. No positive engagement indeed. After taking her all over Allenham House and fixing on the very rooms they were to live in hereafter, Eleanor, for her sister's sake, could not press the subject farther and hoped it would not was not required of her or for Willoughby's. Since though Marianne might lose much, he could gain very little by the enforcement of the real truth. After a short silence on both sides, Mrs. Jennings, with all her natural hilarity, burst forth again. Well, my dear, tis true saying about an ill wind, for it will be all the better for Colonel Brandon. He will have her at last. Aye, that he will. Mind me now, if they aren't married by midsummer, Lord, how he'll chuckle over this news. I hope he will come tonight. It will be all to one a better match for your sister. Two thousand a year without debt or drawback, except the little love child indeed. I had forgot her, but she may be prenticed out at a small cost. And then what does it signify? Delford is a nice place. I can tell you exactly what I call a nice old-fashioned place, full of comforts and conveniences, quite shut in with the great garden walls that are covered with the best fruit trees in the country. And such a mulberry tree in one corner. Lord, how Charlotte and I did stuff the only time we were there. <laughs> then there is a devote coat, the same delightful stew ponds and very pretty canal and everything in short that one could wish for. And moreover, it is close to the church and only a quarter of a mile from the turnpike road. So tis never dull, for if you only go and sit up in an old yew arbor behind the house, you may see all the carriages that pass along. Oh, tis a nice place, a butcher hardened by the village and a parsonage house with the stone's throw. To my fancy, a thousand times prettier than Barton Park, where they are forced to send three miles for their meat and have not a neighbor nearer than your mother. Well, I shall sprint up to the colonel as soon as I can. One shoulder of mutton, you know, drives another down. If we can, but put Willoughby out of her head. Aye, if we can do that, ma'am, said Eleanor, we should do that very well with or without Colonel Brandon. And then rising, she went away to join Marianne, whom she found, as she expected, in her own room, leaning in silent misery over a small remains of a fire till Eleanor's entrance had been her only light. You would better leave me, was all the notice her sister received from her. I will leave you, said Eleanor, if you will go to bed. But this from the momentary pervasiveness of impatient suffering as she first refused to do. Her sister's earnest, though gentle persuasion, however, soon softened her to compliance, and Eleanor saw her lay her aching head on the pillow and saw her, as she hoped, in a way to get some quiet rest before she left her. In the drawing room, whether she then repaired, was soon joined by Mrs. Jennings with a wine glass full of something in her hand. My dear, she said, entering, I have just recollected that I have some of the finest old Contancia wine in the house that ever was tasted. So I have brought a glass of it for your sister. My poor husband, how fond he was of it. Whenever he had a torch of his old colicky gout, he said it did him more good than anything else in the world. Do take it to your sister. 
Dear ma'am, replied Eleanor, smiling at the indifference of the complaints for which it was recommended. How good you are, but I have just left Marianne in bed and I hope almost to sleep, and I think nothing will be of much service to her as rest. If you will give it, if you will give me leave, I will drink the wine myself. Mrs. Jennings, though regretting that she had not been five minutes earlier, was satisfied with the compromise, and Eleanor, as she swallowed the chief of it, reflected that, though its good effects on a colicky gout were at present of little importance to her, its healing powers on disappointed heart may be as reasonably tried on herself as on her sister. Colonel Brandon came in while the party were at tea, and by his manner of looking round the room for Marianne, Eleanor immediately fancied that he neither expected nor wished to see her there, and in short, that he was already aware of what occasioned her absence. Mrs. Jennings was not struck by the same thought, for soon after his entrance, she walked across the room to the tea table where Eleanor presided and whispered, The colonel looks as grave as ever, you see. He knows nothing of it. Do tell him, my dear. He shortly afterwards drew a chair close to hers, and with a look which perfectly assured her of his good information, inquired after her sister. Marianne is not well, she said. She has been indisposed all day, and we have persuaded her to go to bed. Perhaps then, he hesitatingly replied, what I heard this morning may be, there may be more truth in it than I could believe possible at first. What did you hear? That a gentleman whom I had reason to think, in short, that a man who I know to be engaged, but how I, shall I tell you? If you know it already, as surely you must, I may be spared. You mean, answered Eleanor with forced calmness, Mr. Willoughby's marriage with Miss Gray? Yes, we do know it all. This seems to have been a day of general elucidation, for this is very morning it first unfolded to us. Mr. Willoughby is unfathomable. Where did you hear it? In a stationer's shop in Pall Mall, where I had business, two ladies were waiting for their carriage, and one of them was giving the other an account of the intended match in a voice so little attempting concealment that it was impossible for me not to hear it all. The name of Willoughby, John Willoughby, frequently repeated, caught my attention first, and what followed was a positive assertion that everything was now finally settled respecting his marriage with Miss Gray. It was no longer to be a secret. It would take place even within a few weeks, and many particulars of preparations and other matters— one thing especially I remember, because it served to identify the man still more, as soon as the ceremony was over, they were to go to Combe Magna and his seat at Somershire. My astonishment, but it would be impossible to describe what I felt. The communicative lady I learnt on inquiry, for I stand in the shop till they were for I stayed in the shop till they were gone, was a Miss Ellison, and that, as I have been since informed, is the name of Miss Gray's guardian. It is, but have you likewise heard that Miss Gray has 50,000 pounds? In that, if anything, we may found an explanation. It may be so, but Willoughby is capable, at least I think. He stopped a moment and then added a voice which seemed to distrust itself. And your sister, how did she, her sufferings have been very severe. I only hope that they may be proportionately short. It has been, it is most cruel affliction. Till yesterday, I believe she never doubted his regard. And even now, perhaps I... I'm almost convinced that he was never really attached to her. He has been very deceitful, and in some points there seems to be a hardness of heart about him. Ah, said Colonel Brandon, there is indeed, but your sister does not. I think you said so. She does not consider it quite as you do. You know her disposition and may believe how eagerly she will still justify him if she could. He made no answer, answer and soon afterwards, by the removal of the tea things and the arrangement of the card parties, the subject was necessarily dropped. Mrs. Jennings, who had watched them with pleasure while they were talking, and who was expected to see the effect of Miss Dashwood's communication in such an instantaneous gaiety on Colonel Brandon's side, 
as might have become a man in the bloom of youth of hope of happiness saw him with amazement remain the whole evening more serious and thoughtful than usual chapter 31 from a night of more sleep than she expected marianne awoke the next morning to the same consciousness of misery in which she had closed her eyes eleanor encouraged her as much as possible to talk of what she felt and before breakfast was ready they had gone through the subject again and again with the same steady conviction and affectionate counsel on Eleanor's side, the same impetuous feelings and varying opinions on Marianne's as before. Sometimes she could believe Willoughby to be as unfortunate and as innocent as herself, and at others lost every consolation at the impossibility of acquitting him. At one moment, she was absolutely indifferent to the observation of all the world, at another, she would seclude herself from it forever, and at a third, she could resist it with energy. In one thing, however, she was uniform. When it came to the point in avoiding, where it was possible, the presence of Mrs. Jennings and in detrimented silence when obliged to endure it, her heart was hardened against the belief of Mrs. Jennings entering into her sorrows with any No, it cannot be, she cried. She cannot feel. Her kindness is not sympathy. Her good nature is not tenderness. All that she wants is gossip, and she only likes me now because I supply it. Eleanor had not needed this to be assured of the injustice to which her sister was often led in her opinion of others by the irritable refinement of her own mind and the too great importance placed on her on the delicacies of a strong sensibility and the graces of a polished manner. Like half the rest of the world, it more than half if more than half there could be that are clever and good, Marianne, with excellent abilities and an excellent disposition, was neither reasonable nor candid. She expected from other people the same opinions and feelings as her own, and she judged of their motives by the immediate effect of their actions on herself. Thus, a circumstance occurred while the sisters were together in their own room at breakfast, which sunk the heart of Mrs. Jennings still lower in her estimation, because through her own weakness, it chanced to prove a source of fresh pain to herself, though Mrs. Jennings was governed by it in an impulse of the utmost goodwill. With a letter in her outstretched hand and countenance gaily smiling from the persuasion of being bringing comfort, she entered their room saying, Now, my dear, I bring you something that I am sure will do you good. Marianne heard enough. In one moment, her imagination placed before her a letter from Willoughby, full of tenderness and contrition, explanatory of all that had passed, satisfactory, convincing, and instantly followed by Willoughby himself, rushing eagerly into the room to enforce at her feet by the eloquence of his eyes, the assurances of his letter. The work of one moment was destroyed by the next. The handwriting of her mother, never till then unwelcome, and was, was before her. And in the acuteness of the disappointment which followed such an ecstasy of more than hope, she felt as if, till that instant, she had never suffered. The cruelty of Mrs. Jennings, no language within her reach in her moments of happy eloquence, could have expressed, and now she could reproach her only by the tears which streamed from her eyes with passionate violence. A reproach, however, so entirely lost on its object that after many expressions of pity, she withdrew, still referring to the letter for comfort. But the letter, when she was calm enough to read it, brought little comfort. Willoughby filled every page, her mother still confident of their engagement, and relying as warmly as ever on his constancy, had only been roused by Eleanor's application to entreat from Marianne greater openness toward them both, 
and this with such tenderness toward her, such affection for Willoughby, and such a conviction of their future happiness in each other, that she wept with agony through the whole of it. All her impatience to be at home again now returned. Her mother was dearer than ever, dearer though than the excess of her mistaken confidence in Willoughby, and she was wildly urgent to go home. Eleanor, unable herself to determine whether it were better for Marianne to be in London or Barton, offered no counsel of her own except of patience till their mother's wishes could be known, and at length she obtained her sister's consent to wait for that knowledge. Mrs. Jennings left them earlier than usual, for she could not be easy till the Middletons and Palmers were able to grieve as much as herself, and positively refusing Eleanor's offered attendance, went out alone for the rest of the morning. Eleanor, with a very heavy heart, aware of the pain she was going to communicate, and perceiving by Marianne's letter how ill she had succeeded in laying out any foundation for it, then sat down to write her mother an account of what had passed and entreat her directions for the future, while Marianne, who came into the drawing room on Mrs. Jennings going away, remained fixed at the table where Eleanor wrote, watching the advancement of her pen, grieving over her for the hardship of such a task, and grieving still more fondly over its effect on her mother. In this manner, they had continued about a quarter of an hour when Marianne, whose nerves could not then bear any sudden noise, was startled by a rap at the door. Who can this be? cried Eleanor. So early, too. I thought we had been safe. Marianne moved to the window. It is Colonel Brandon, said she with vexation. We are never to be safe from him. He will not come in as Mrs. Jennings is not home. I will not trust to that, retreating to her own room. A man who has nothing to do with his own time and no conscience in his intrusion on others. This event proved her conjecture right, though it was founded on injustice and error, for Colonel Brandon did come in, and Eleanor, who was convinced that solitude for Marianne brought him thither, and who saw that soli solitude in his disturbed and melancholy look, and in his anxious thought, brief inquiry after her, could not forgive her sister for esteeming him so lightly. I met Mrs. Jennings in Bond Street, he said, after the first salutation, and she encouraged me to come on, and I was more easily encouraged because I thought it probable that I might find you alone, which I was very desirous of doing. My object, my wish, my sole wish in desiring it, I hope, I believe it is, is to be a means of giving comfort. No, I must not say comfort, no present comfort, but conviction, lasting conviction to your sister's mind. My regard for her, for yourself, for your mother, will allow me to prove it by relating some circumstances with which nothing but a very sincere regard, nothing but an earnest desire to be useful. I think I am justified, though where there's so many hours I've spent in convincing myself that I am right. Is there not some reason to fear that I may be wrong? He stopped. I understand you, said Eleanor. You have something to tell me of Mr. Willoughby that will open his character farther. Your telling it will be my greatest act of friendship that can be shown Marianne. My gratitude will be ensured immediately by any information tending to that end, and hers must be granted by it in time. Pray, pray, let me hear it. You shall, and to be brief, when I quitted Barton last October, but this will give you no idea I must go further back, you will find me a very awkward narrator, Miss Dashwood. I hardly know where to begin. A short account of myself, I believe, will be necessary, and it shall be a short one. On such a subject, sighing heavily, I can have little temptation to be diffuse. He stopped a moment for recollection, and then, with another sigh, went on. You have probably entirely forgotten a conversation. It is not to be supposed that it could make any impression on you. A conversation between us one evening at Barton Park. It was the evening of a dance in which I alluded to a lady I'd once known as resembling in some measure your sister Marianne. Indeed, answered Eleanor, I have not forgotten it. 
He looked pleased by this resemblance and added, if I am not deceived by the uncertainty, the partiality of tender reflection, there is a very strong resemblance between them as well in mind as person. The same warmth of heart, the same eagerness of fancy and spirits. This lady was one of my nearest relations, an orphan from her infancy and under the guardianship of my father. Our ages were nearly the same, and from our earliest years we were playfellows and friends. I cannot remember the time when I did not love Eliza, and my affection for her as we grew up was such as perhaps judging from my present forlorn and cheerful, cheerless gra gravity, you might think me incapable of having ever felt. Hers for me was, I believe, fervent as the attachment of your sister to Mr. Willoughby, and it was, though from a different cause, no less unfortunate. At 17, she was lost to me forever. She was married, married against her inclination to my brother. Her fortune was large and her, our family estate was much encumbered. And this, I fear, is all that I can, all that can be said for the conduct of one who was at once her uncle and her guardian. My brother did not deserve her. He did not even love her. I had hoped that her regard for me would support her under any difficulty. And for some time it did. But at last the misery of her own situation, for she experienced great unkindness, overcame all her resolution. And though she had promised me nothing, but how blindly I relate, I have never told you this, how this was brought on. We were within a few hours of eloping together for Scotland. The treachery or the folly of my cousin's maid betrayed us. I was banished to the house of a relation far distant, and she was allowed no liberty, no society, no amusement, till my father's point was gained. I depended on her fortitude too far, and the blow was a, seven, a severe one. But had her marriage been happy, so young as I was then, a few months may have reconciled me to it, or at least I should not have now lamented. It was, however, not the case. My brother had no regard for her. His pleasures were not what they ought to have been, and from what the first he treated her unkindly. The consequence of this upon a mind so young, so lively, so inexperienced as Miss Br Mrs. Brandon's was but too natural. She resigned herself at first to all the misery of her situation, and happy it had been as if she had not lived to overcome those regrets which the remembrance of me occasioned. But we can wonder with such a husband to provoke inconsistency and without a friend to advise or restrain her. For my father lived only a few months after their marriage and I was with my reignment in the East Indies. She should fall. Had I remained in England, perhaps, but I meant to promote the happiness of both by removing from her for years and for what that purpose had procured my exchange. The shock which her marriage had given me, he continued in a great, a voice of great agitation, was of trifling weight, was nothing to what was felt when I heard about two years afterwards of her divorce. It was that which drew this gloom, even now the recollection of what I suffered. He could say no more and rising hastily walked a few minutes about the room. Eleanor afflicted by his relation and still more his distress could not speak. He saw her concern and coming to her took her hand and pressed it and kissed it with grateful respect. A few minutes more of silent exertion enabled him to proceed with composure. It was nearly three years after this unhappy period before I returned to England. My first care when I did arrive was, of course, to seek her, but the search was a fruitless and melancholy. I could not trace her beyond her first seducer, and there was every reason to fear that she had been removed from him only to sink deeper into a life of sin. Her legal allowance was not adequate to her fortune, nor sufficient for her comfortable maintenance, and I learnt from my brother that the power of receiving it had only made over some months before to another person. He imagined and calmly as he could 
obliged her to dispose of it for some immediate relief. At last, however, and after I had been six months in England, I did find her. Regard for a former servant of my own who had since fallen into misfortune carried me to visit him in a springing house where he was confined for debt. And there in the same house under similar confinement was my unfortunate sister, so altered, so faded, worn down by acute suffering of every kind. Hardly could I believe the melancholy and sickly figure before me to be the remains of the lovely, blooming, healthful girl on whom I had once doted. What I endured in beholding her, but I have no right to wound your feelings by attempting to describe it. I have pained you too much already. She, That she was, to all appearance, in the last stage of consumption was, yes, in such a situation it was my greatest comfort. Life could do nothing for her beyond giving time for a better preparation for death, and that was given. I saw her placed in comfortable lodgings and under proper attendance. I visited her every day during the rest of her short life. I was with her in her last moments. Again, he stopped to recover himself, and Eleanor spoke her feelings in an exclamation of tender concern at the fate of his unfortunate friend. Your sister, I hope, cannot be offended, said he, by the resemblance I have fancied between her and my poor disgraced relation. Their fates, their fortunes cannot be the same. And had the natural sweet disposition of the one been guarded by a firmer mind or a happier marriage, she may have been all that you will live to see the other be. But to what does this all lead? I seem to have been distressing you for nothing. Oh, Miss Dashwood, a subject on such as this, untouched for 14 years, it is dangerous to handle it at all. I will be more collected, more concise. She left to my care her only child, a little child, the offspring of her first guilty connection, who was then about three years old. She loved the child and had always kept it with her. It was valued a precious trust to me, and gladly would I have discharged it in the stri strictest sense by watching over her education myself, had the nature of our situation allowed it. But I had no family, no home, and my little Eliza was therefore placed at school. I saw her there whenever I could, and after the death of my brother, which happened about five years ago, and which he left to me the possession of the family property, she frequently visited me at Delaford. I called her a distant relation, but I am well aware that I have general been suspected of a much nearer connection with her. It is now three years ago, she had just reached her 14th year, that I removed her from school to place her under the care of a very respectable woman residing in Dordeshire, who had the charge of four or five other girls of about the same life, and for two years I had every reason to be pleased with her situation. But last February, almost a 12-month back, she suddenly disappeared. I had allowed her, and prudently as it once turned out, at her earnest desire to go to Bath with one of her young friends, who was attending her father there for his health. I knew him to be a very good sort of man, and I thought well of his daughter, better than she deserved, for with a most obstinate and ill-judged secrecy, she would tell nothing, would give no clue, though she certainly knew. He, her father, a well-meaning but not quick-sighted man, could really, I believe, give no information, for he had generally confined to the house while the girls were raging all over the town and making what acquaintances they chose, and he tried to convince me, as thoroughly as he was convinced himself of his daughter being entirely unconcerned in the business, in short, I could learn nothing but that she was gone. All the rest for eight months was left to conjecture. What I thought, what I feared, what may be imagined, and what I suffered too. Good heavens, cried Eleanor. Could it be, could Willoughby, the first news that reached me of her, he continued, came in from a letter from herself last October. It was forwarded to me from Delaford, and I received it on the very morning of our intended party to Whitwell. This was the reason of my leaving Barton so suddenly, which I am sure must at the time have appeared strange to everybody, and which must, I believe, have given offense to some. Little did Mr. Willoughby imagine, I suppose, when his looks censured me, 
for incivility in breaking up the party that I was called away to the relief of one whom he had made poor and miserable. But he had known it. What would have availed? What would he have been less gay or less happy with the smiles of your sister? No, he had already done that, which no man can feel for another would do. He had left the girl whose youth and innocence he had seduced in a situation of the utmost distress with no credible home, no help, no friends, ignorant of his address. He had left her promising to return. He neither returned nor wrote nor relieved her. This is beyond everything, exclaimed Eleanor. His character is now before you, expensive, dissipated, and worse than both. Knowing all this, as I have now known it many weeks, guess what I must have felt on seeing your sister as fond of him as ever, and on being assured that she was to marry him. Guess what I must have felt for all your sakes. When I came to you last week and found you alone, I came determined to know the truth, though irresolute on what on what to do when it was known. My behavior must have seemed strange to you then, but now you will comprehend it. To suffer you all to be so deceived, to see your sister, what could I do? I had no hope of interfering with success, and sometimes I thought your sister's influence might yet reclaim him. But now, after such dishonorable usage, who can tell what his designs on her were? Whatever they may have been, however, she may now and hereafter doubtless will, with gratitude, turn toward her own condition, which she compares it with that of my poor Eliza, when she considers the wretched and hopeless situation of this poor girl, and pictures herself with an affection for him so strong, still as strong as her own, and with a mind tormented by self-reproach, which she must attend through her life. Surely this comparison must have its use with her. She will feel her own sufferings to be nothing. They proceed from no misconduct, and can bring no disgrace. On the contrary, every friend must be made still more her friend by them. Concern for her unhappiness and respect for her fortitude under it. However, in communicating to her what I have told you, you must know what is best will be its fact, effect. But I had, but had I not seriously and from my heart believed it would be of service, might lessen her regrets, I would not have suffered myself to trouble you with this account of my family afflictions with a recital of what may seem to have been intended to raise myself at the expense of others. Eleanor's thanks followed this speech with a grateful earnestness, attended to with the assurance of her expecting marital advantage to Marianne from the communication of what had passed. I have been more pained, said she, by her endeavors to acquit him than by all the rest, for it irritates her mind more than the most perfect conviction of his unworthiness can do. Now, though at first she will suffer much, I am sure she will soon become easier. Have you, she continued after short silence, have you ever seen Mr. Willoughby since you left him at Barden? Yes, he replied gravely. Once I have. One meeting was unavoidable. Eleanor, startled by his manner, looked at him anxiously, saying, What? Have you met him, too? I could meet him in no other way. Eliza confessed to me, though most reluctantly, the name of her lover. And when he returned to town, which was within a fortnight after myself, we met by appointment. He to defend, I to punish his conduct. We return unwounded, and the meeting, therefore, never got abroad. Eleanor sighed over the fancied necessity of this, but to a man and a soldier, she presumed not to censure it. Such, said Colonel Brandon after a pause, has been the unhappy resemblance between the fate of a mother and daughter, and so imperfectly have I discharged my trust. Is she still in town? No, as soon as she recovered from her lying in, for I found near her delivery, I removed her and her child into the country, and there she remains. Recollecting soon afterwards that he was probably dividing Eleanor from her sister, he put an end to his visit, receiving from her again the same grateful acknowledgement and leaving her full of compassion and esteem for him.